Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Long before psychology talked to us about consciousness and subconsciousness, uh, we find this articulated, we find the ideas communicated to us very clearly uh, in the Torah and discussed in the writing of the rabbis. Um, today, I'm going to study with you together um, a prohibition in the Torah that's articulated in the beginning of this week's Parsha, referred to as Shoichat, Shoichat, the prohibition against a judge accepting bribes, uh, financial or other types of incentives to rule one way or the other. And the Gemara discusses actually quite, in quite a lengthy discussion, that both the litigants and the judges don't necessarily realize in certain circumstances, certain situations, that they're involved in this, they're, they're violating this prohibition of giving bribes or being bribed. And yet, nevertheless, uh, without people's realizing, they may find themselves in a situation where their perspective is, is, is skewed, where their biases are altering their way of thinking uh, because they find themselves in a circumstance of, of bribe. Let's learn it together slowly from the beginning. So this week's Parsha is Parsha Shoftim. If you have a Chumash in front of you, the Parsha begins with a very famous mitzvah, Shoftim v'shoitrim, titan l'chol b'chol shorech. The Torah says you shall appoint judges and policemen. The job of the policeman here, is, Rashi explains, is to enforce the ruling of the judges. B'chol shorech in all your gates, meaning in all the Jewish cities. That Hashem has given to your tribes, meaning the biblical mitzvah applies to every city in Eretz Yisrael. And these judges shall judge the people in a just, they shall provide for them a just ruling. They are forbidden to pervert, to twist the judgment. They are forbidden to show favoritism. And they may not accept a bribe. Ki HaShoychad explains the Torah because a bribe, Ya'aver Einei Chachamim, will blind the eyes of the wise. Bisalef Tivrei Tzadikim, and pervert and twist the words of the righteous. Instead, as it is written, I believe, in the Supreme Court of the land, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdaif, justice, justice shall you pursue. Laman Tichyasi, you will live. Bi'arash Tosores, and you shall inherit the land. Asher Hashem Lekech that Hashem, that Hashem is giving you. The punishment, the Torah is telling us, the consequence for twisted judgments, for accepting bribes, for allowing the justice system of the Jewish people to be perverted, the consequence of that is that we are no longer merit to live in Eretz Yisrael. Hashem will send us, Hashem will send us into goals. The significance of this mitzvah is actually not difficult to understand. No society, uh, can survive without, to one degree or another, an honest justice system. If the justice system is corrupt and perverted, then of course, as we all know, and as we've learned so many times in human history, um, it's just a question of time until the entire society spirals out of control uh, for, for the most obvious reasons. In order for a society to function, there needs to be a justice system where people cannot get away with lying and stealing from other people. They cannot get away with hurting other people, Rahman al-Islam. Um, very simple. And, and the judges who are responsible for this, they need to, in a non-biased way, they need to pursue justice and they need to pursue it with everything they have. 
um, and, and, and do their best to judge honestly. And this way, the society can function. Even again, even Lahavdila, a non Jewish society, definitely. When it comes to a Jewish society, we're supposed to be Orla Goyim, a light to the nations. We're supposed to be an example. Definitely, uh, this mitzvah is incredibly important. Once again, not difficult to understand why the Torah gives us this mitzvah, not difficult to understand its importance. Very straightforward. Okay. Very, very, uh, the significance of which is also easy, easy to understand. But like everything else, when you start paying attention to the words, there seems to be added emphasis here. The Torah says, mishpot, don't twist the judgment, don't show favoritism, and don't accept a bribe. The Gemara learns many halachas from these sort of repeated admonitions of the Torah, right? Uh, again, without getting, without getting too carried away here, the Gemara says the Torah is not only telling us, the Gemara explains it this way, the Gemara says the Torah is not only telling us not to accept a bribe, when the judgment, when the ruling will be perverted, will be changed, right? Not to accept a bribe and to, and to twist the ruling away from what it's supposed to be. But even even to grant merit to the one who deserves it and to obligate the one who deserves it. In other words, even if a case comes before a judge and it's so obvious that, you know, Ruvain is chayev, Ruvain is obligated, litigant X, is guilty and litigant Y is innocent, etc. Even if it's clear cut to the judge and the judge thinks to himself, well, the bribe is, is not gonna change my opinion because the, the case is so clear. <coughs> Excuse me, even so, a judge is not allowed to accept the bribe. Not allowed to, under any circumstances. The Gemara learns from here that bribes are not always, bribes are not limited, limited to financial bribes, right? Even the Gemara says, Shoich a bribe, uh, incentive of dvorim is also forbidden. The commentary is discussed. Does that mean a, a verbal bribe is forbidden? Right? If, if one of the litigants flatter the judge, compliment them, you know, then the judge may be, and the judge accepts it, the judge accepts the compliment. The judge, according to some opinions, may be guilty of accepting a bribe although it has no monetary value, but it's made him feel good, right? A good compliment can, can make you feel fantastic. Now you're more biased toward the person who's complimented you. Other commentaries explain the, the expression a bribe is not a verbal bribe, a bribe of, of things, things, acts of service, um, or even things that have not necessarily no monetary value, not even verbal. Right, just a gesture or anything could be considered a bribe. There's much discussion in the Gemara about this. The Gemara relates actually about one of the sages of the Talmud that he was an elderly man and he was crossing a bridge um, on his way home or, or on his way to yeshiva or wherever he was going. And the bridge apparently was narrow and rickety. He was shaking while he was walking and, and the sage was having a hard time cross the bridge. So somebody who was also on this bridge together with him lent the, lent the sage a hand. He said, here, give me your hand and I'll help you, I'll support you as we cross this bridge. All right, the sage gracefully accepts and he's holding on to him and they're walking across the bridge. And as they're walking across the bridge, the sage, the Amoira says to this individual, so tell me, they're making conversation. He says, tell me, what do you do for a living? 
He says, I'm involved in this and this type of business. In fact, the guy says to him, me and a litigant of mine have a court case that's coming before you in a couple of weeks. And the sage says, oh, um, no, you don't. I'm actually not going to be able to take your case because now that you've afforded me this service of helping me physically cross the bridge, even though he didn't say anything to compliment, to flatter him, he didn't even give him anything that was necessarily worth a significant amount of money, but, but, but just the fact that he had physically helped him, the sage said, this is a form of shaykha, this is a form of brat. If I took your case, I'd be biased for your sake against your litigant. And therefore he extricated himself and said, I, I cannot take the case. And other such examples, stories in the Quran. Okay. But for today, I want to, again, all of these highlighting the significance, the importance of a judge being sure that he has no preconceived agendas, that he is impartial to both sides, and that he can hear and try the case honestly, right? The Gemara says, a judge may not take a case if he particularly likes any one of the litigants, or if, if he particularly dislikes any one of the litigants. A judge has to be parav, indifferent, and impartial, and just pursue the justice, the truth, as is. Okay. Now, to articulate how far this goes to, to show us how significant this mitzvah is. The Gemara tells what I think is, is, is a harrowing tale. All right. In the times of the Gemara, there was a sage by the name of Rav Onon. That was his name, Rav Onon. Less well known than some of his contemporaries, but nevertheless, a Talmudic sage. Rav Onon had a unique opportunity. He had a unique gift that was not uniquely his. Others had it as well, had, had, had it in Jewish history as well, but is considered, as far as the Torah learning experience is concerned, is considered the very zenith, is considered, uh, you know, the very highest form of study in Torah. What was that? He was personally taught his Torah studies by Elio Hanovi. Elio Hanovi would come and teach Rav Onan. Uh, he, he would come and study Torah with him. Rav Onan, says the Gemara, recorded these Torah teachings. Recorded, the, he, he wrote them down. And this is the source of what we refer to today as Tanat Ve'elio, which means the teachings, the recordings that were taught in the Ve'elio means in the yeshiva of Elio. It wasn't Elio Anobi lived in the times of the prophets thousands of years ago, more than a thousand years before the times of the, uh, more, than, more than one and a half thousand years before the times of the Gemara. But it was recorded in the days of the mission of the Gemara by sages with whom Elio taught, including Ravana. Tanat Ve'elio quoted in many places in, in, in the Gemara. Rav Onan would study Torah with Elio Anobi, clearly uh, a great Talmudic sage. All right. The Gemara relates that one day, a certain man, the Gemara does not identify who he was, this, a certain man brought him a basket of Gildana fish. Gildana fish, the Talmud tells us, live among the reeds, apparently a very small type of fish, and maybe some nice type of delicacy. The man brought Rav Onan out of nowhere. He brought him a basket 
of this type of fish. So maybe the modern day equivalent of a nice jar of schmaltz herring, if that's what you're into, or pickled herring, if that's what you're into, or gefilte fish, whatever. He brought him a basket of fish. Now, Rav, a guy shows up at your door, right? Brings you a basket of fish. Straight away, Rav Onan's antenna, his, his, uh, his radar goes up. Ah, somebody bringing me a gift. He tells him, well, what, 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 what's going on? What, 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 what's your business? What, what are you doing here bringing me fish? So the guy tells Rav Onan, well, I'm, uh, I'm bringing you a basket of fish because me and a buddy of mine, me and a litigant of mine, are coming to you for a dentire, are coming to you for a court case. And uh, you're going to judge our case. So I'm bringing you a, a gift, a basket of fish. Clearly, admittedly, transparently, trying to bribe the sage. All right. Omar Leisar of Onan says to him, number one, I'm not accepting it. I'm not accepting. No, thank you. Number two, I will not be taking your case. Number one, I'm not going to, going to accept your, listen to this. Number one, I'm not going to accept your gift because it's being given to me in an attempt to bribe me. And number two, even though I'm not going to take your gift, I'm still not going to take your case because you tried to bribe me. So I won't take the gift which was given as an attempt to bribe me. And I won't take the case because there was an attempt at bribery in the case, even though I didn't accept the bribe, even, even though I didn't accept the bribe. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not an attorney, um, but to the best of my limited knowledge, there is precedent for this even in legal law, where a judge who, who is who, a judge in a case where an attempt is made to bribe him, even if the judge does not does, does the right thing and refuses, turns down the bribe, the judge would still have to extricate himself from the case just because of the attempt that was made. The attempt alone can be significant enough, sufficient enough for the judge to have to remove himself. And so Rav Onan does. He says no to the gift and extricates himself from the court case. The man accepts. He says, okay, okay, all right. But the man says, if you're not going to if you're not going to hear the case anyways do me a favor accept the gift now i'm not giving it to you as a now i'm not giving it to you as a bribe now i'm giving it to you just as a gift because you're anyways not taking the case now please take the gift and the man says i'm going to tell you why i'm insisting that you take the gift he quotes a verse the verse this is when you know you're in trouble by the way when the people who are trying to bribe you are giving you Dvar Torahs. He quotes a Pasuk from Malachim Beis. Malachim Beis, the Torah is telling a very famous story there about how a Novi, a prophet called Elisha, uh, blesses a woman that she should have a child. The child is born. When he is a young boy, Rahman Lutzlan, he becomes ill and passes. And Elisha actually brings him back to life. According to some opinions, this young child grew up to become Yoyna Hanavi, the prophet Yoyna, whom we read about on Yom Kippur. Right after that, the Torah says that Elisha goes back to his students to continue studying with them. But there was a terrible famine in Eretz Yisrael at that time. 
and there was no food. And the students were, were they were dying of starvation. Poshet, Rahman al-Islam. Says the Pasuk, and a man out of nowhere arrives to Elisha from a, from a place called Baal Shalishai. And this man, again, the Torah does not identify who he, who he is, brings Elisha a gift. He brings him lechem bikurim, which means, which either means uh, bread from, from, from barley that had just grown, or it means lechem bread, actual bikurim, bikurim bread. Either way, esrim lechem soirim, 20 uh, loaves of barley, the caramel betzikloi, and, um, and fresh kernels uh, um, in their husks. He brings this gift to Elisha, Elisha accepts it. The reason why the Torah, in that case, there was no issue of bribes, there was no litigation going on, there was no din Torah, it was just a gift. The reason why the Torah tells that story is because a great miracle happens with these 20 loaves of bread and they miraculously, Elisha makes that they become enough to sustain and to feed thousands of students um, which the Torah, the Torah tells the story in, in articulating the different miracles that Elisha had done, right? He, he revived the child from the dead and he made 20 loaves of bread be enough miraculously for thousands of students. That's why the Torah tells the story. But tells this man tells Ravana, Chazal, our rabbis teach us that there's special significance in the fact that this bread is referred to as Lechem Bikurim. It's it's to teach us, quote, anybody who gives a gift to a scholar, anybody who gives the Talmud Chacham a gift, is considered as if he had fulfilled the mitzvah of bringing Bikurim. In two weeks from now, in Parshas, when we get to Parshas Kisavai, we're going to read about this incredible mitzvah of Bikurim. Um, which the Jews would bring the first of the fruits, they would bring it to the base of Mikdash. It was done with tremendous, tremendous joy and celebration. And um, the Koyanim would receive it. It was an opportunity for Jews to, to, to express their gratitude to Hashem for, for giving them all the amazing gifts Hashem has given us in life, including, of course, the land of Eretz Yisrael. It's a very special mitzvah, Bikurim. Says this man in the Talmudic tale, Turav Onan, the rabbis explain that the reason why the gift brought to Elisha the prophet is referred to as Lechem Bikurim is to teach us that whenever a gift is given to a Talmud Chacham, it's the person who is given the gift is considered as if he's brought Bikurim to Hashem. But obviously, that's only if the Talmud Chacham accepts the gift. If the Talmud Chacham doesn't accept the gift, if the sage, if the scholar doesn't accept the gift, then, then, then what have you done? Nothing. So please, says this man, who one moment ago had attempted to bribe Rav Onan, please, says this man to Rav Onan, accept the gift. It's not going to help me in my litigation. It's not going to help me in my case. But, but if you accept the gift, then I will have enacted and fulfill this saying of the teacher, of the rabbis, that if you give a gift to a Talmud Chacham, to a scholar, it's as if you bring Bikurim to Hashem. So please accept it. And Rav Onan accepts. You can't resist the Dvar Torah like that. 
And of course, the idea here is that at this stage, th there's no more consequence to this, to this gift. There's no issue of bribe. Rav Onan has already said clearly, he's refusing to take the case. Okay. Rav Onan says to him, I wasn't going to accept your gift in the beginning because you were trying to bribe me with it. But now that you've explained that you have a different motive, your motive is L'shem Shemayim, right? You want to bring Bikurim to Hashem? I accept. Continues the Talmud. The case still needed to be tried. Rav Onan had extricated himself, but there was still a dintire, there was still litigation that needed to take place. So Rav Onan wrote this individual, Rav Onan gave this individual a letter. The letter was addressed to Rav Nachman, a colleague of Rav Onan, Rav Nachman, one of the greatest Talmudic sages. And in this letter, Rav Onan wrote, please take the case of this individual, may my master of Nachman judge this man in his case, the Ano Onan, because I, Rav Onan, he refers to himself in, in humility as Onan, I am invalid, I am possible to take this man's case. So he sends a letter with him to Rav Nachman, addressed to Rav Nachman, please take this man's case. I, Rav Onan, cannot take it. I'm invalid. I, I, I'm forbidden halachically to take the case. Now, Rav Onan did not write in the letter why he was not allowed to take the case. He just wrote that he individually was invalidated. He was not allowed to take it. He didn't give the reason. He just said, no, Onan, I, Onan, impossible at dinner. Rav Nachman gets the letter, sees that this man has a letter from Rav Onan, Rav Onan saying, please take the case. Rav Onan is invalid. He's not allowed to take it. Rav Nachman assumes that the reason, why, why would Rav Onan not be allowed to take the case? Rav Nachman assumes that this man is a relative. He assumes he's a relative of, of, of Rav Onan. Rav Nachman takes the case and he doesn't just take the case because he thinks to himself, because this man is related to Rav Onan who sits and studies Torah with Elio Anavi. he actually bumps it up ahead of schedule. Any of you who have ever had uh, any dealings with court or, uh, or with judges, you'll know that scheduling, scheduling cases is a very big deal in terms of the priority of which cases get tried first and which cases get postponed. This is, this is an incredibly significant issue. Some cases wait years until they're tried properly uh, for all sorts of technical and, 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 and procedural reasons. And there's quite a bit of discussion in halacha as to how to prioritize cases. One of the laws, one of the factors when it comes to prioritizing cases, which cases are heard before others, is a rule that, that relatives of a Talmud Chochem they have an edge, they have, they have to some degree, they have rights for their cases to be heard before others in, some, in certain, circumstances. certain circumstances. There are, there are exceptions, of course, but this is one of the factors that play into, play into the decision when, when cases are heard is if, if, if a person comes and they are related to one of the Talmud Chacham, one of the G'doyle Hadar, they get precedence. Of course, their own relatives their own relatives may not judge the case. A judge who's related 
who's a family relative of one of the litigants obviously cannot hear the case. But a different judge who's not related can hear the case and the case has some degree of priority if one or more of the litigants are related to, to a sage. Rav Nachman gets this letter. Again, Rav Nachman gets this letter. Rav Onan is saying, I cannot take the case because I am postal din, I'm invalid. Rav Nachman assumes this guy is related and he bumps the case up. He gives it extra priority. And he puts it, the Gemara says, even before a case that he was about to try that was related, that involved orphans. Okay. What happened, says the Gemara, was this individual, again, the, the, the individual who, who first went to Rav Onan and now is standing in front of Rav Nachman, this individual won the case, but he won the case unfairly. Listen to this, listen to open your hearts. The Gemara says he won the case unfairly. Why? Because when his litigant, when, when the person he was fighting with saw that Rav Nachman, the judge, was treating him with deference and seeing the case ahead of, and taking the case ahead of time, the litigant assumed that the, the litigant assumed that his counterpart, the person he was fighting with, was going to get extra special treatment. The Gemara says, he lost his confidence, he lost his gall, he lost his, he lost his fire to argue the case properly in the presence of the judge. He saw the judge giving some precedence, he saw the judge giving some special treatment to his, to his baldin, to, to the person he was fighting with, and the air left his sails. He felt empty. He lost the case, but he lost the case without really feeling like he got to present his case. Not with the full fire, not with the full enthusiasm that he had. He had prepared for this. Istatim Tanosa, he lost his, he lost his literally his, his arguments became blocked. In other words, he, he couldn't present himself well in the presence of court because he saw the judge was giving the other litigant, giving him special treatment. By bumping up the case, by putting it before the case of the orphans. Says the Gemara, when this happened, Eliyahu Anovi, who as I mentioned before, was the teacher of Rav Onon, Eliyahu Hanovi, stopped appearing to Rav Onan and stopped teaching him Torah. And Rav Onan did not know why. So he fasted and he davened and he begged Hashem for mercy. And Elio Anavi came back to him, but in the form of a destroying angel and terrified Rav Onan. So Rav Onan hid himself in a box so he wouldn't see Elio Anovi. Summons back Elio Anovi. Elio Anovi finished teaching him whatever it was that left to be taught, that, that, that had to be taught, but he taught it to him very briefly. In Yiddish, we say, just to finish up whatever needed to be taught and never came back. Punchline. Says the Gemara to this day, 
the the teachings that we have, the Torah teachings that we have, we're now learning this close to 2,000 years later, in the name of Elio, given to us, transmitted to us by Elio Anovi, has two parts, right? What's called Eliyahu Rabba and Eliyahu Zuta. The big Eliyahu and the small Eliyahu, the large te teachings of Eliyahu and the small teachings of Eliyahu. What's the difference? Everything that was taught to Rav Anan before the story is Eliyahu Rabba. Eliyahu would teach him and, and, and teach him in, 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 in great, at great length. Afterwards, after the story, Elio said, no, 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 no. I don't want to hang around with you. I'll teach you what I have to teach. I'll present it and I'm out. Eliyahu Rabba and Eliyahu Zuta. It's, these terms are used in the Talmudic, even in the Kabbalistic world, you'll, you'll hear. Elio Rabba, Eliyahu Zuta. This is the source of it. Elio Rabba, the great teachings of Elio before, before the story, the small teachings of Elio after the story. End of Talmudic tale. And all the commentaries of the Talmud are up in arms. What's going on here? What did Rav Onan do wrong? He said no to the bribe. He said no to the case. He sent it off to a colleague of his, clearly a competent uh, judge, Rav Nachman. All right, Rav Nachman made an innocent mistake. He thought this man was related. All right, mistakes happen. He bumped up the case, which again, he was allowed to do if this man was in fact related. And Elio Anovi reacts by, 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 by refusing to appear to Rav Onan. And if he does, he, he scares him, the Gemara says. Rav Onan can't bear to look at him. He hides himself in a box so he can just hear the teachings which Elio Anovi gives him very briefly and refuses to come back. What did Rav Onan do wrong? The commentaries answer, the commentaries explain that Rav Onan should not have accepted the gift. Rav Onan should not have accepted the gift of, of, of gefilte fish, of schmaltz herring, even though he had refused to take the case because the gift was initially presented to him as a bribe, he should not have taken it even after he extricated himself from the case. Even though the man said to him, giving a gift to a Talmud Chacham is like giving Bikurim, that's only if you present it initially as a gift. But if you present it initially as a bribe, Rav Anand should have walked away and never accepted it at all. Okay. But because of that, he deserves to be punished so harshly. So here's how they explain it. They say, here's what happened. Because Rav Onan accepted a gift that he shouldn't have, what happened was, you see, he sent a message to Rav Nachman. He wrote to Rav Nachman that Rav Nachman should accept this court case. He said, I, Onan, am dine, I'm not allowed to accept it. But he didn't write why. He didn't write why. If he would have written why, if he would have written the reason why I cannot take it is because this man attempted to bribe me, then Rav Nachman would have taken the case, given it no special treatment, and given both litigants an honest day in court. Instead, he didn't write the reason. Rav Onan didn't articulate why it is that he's not taking the case. He just said, I can't. Because he didn't write the reason, this gave room, this made it possible for Rav Nachman to think that the man was related, giving the case extra precedence 
bumping it up ahead of schedule, giving the case extra deference, giving one man at least a perceived advantage over the other, causing his, his litigant to lose his courage in court. All right. He should have written, Rav Onan should have written the reason. He should not have just said, I cannot judge the case. He should have said, I cannot judge the case because this man tried, tried to bribe me. Says the Marshaw, one of the famous commentaries in the Talmud, I'll tell you what the Gemara is really saying here. I'll tell you what the Gemara is really saying. What the Gemara is really saying is that even though Rav Onan refused to take the case and wasn't the judge, by virtue of him accepting the gift, he was still bribed. He accepted a bribe. And the bribe still had an impact on him and caused him to think differently. Again, like I mentioned before, consciously or subconsciously. <clears throat> and the fact that he wrote the letter in such a way that it could be misunderstood and Rav Nachman who received it could have understood it in a way that gave this man an advantage over his, over his litigant was because of the bribe. You see, Masha says, in the end, the bribe worked. He bribed Rav Onan to write the letter in such a way that could have been interpreted as giving him an advantage. He got the advantage and he won the case. And that's the reason why the Talmud tells the story. Not just to tell you that a person should be careful and not accept gifts from ill-meaning individuals. Not just to tell you that, that, that if you take a case, you can be bribed in all sorts of different ways. It's here to tell us that bribery works. It's, it's, it's this type of cancer, Rahman al that creeps up on a person, that creeps up on a case in all sorts of unexpected ways. And even when a judge extricates himself from a case, and even when a judge says, I cannot take the case, and writes a letter to a colleague that he should take the case. If you've been bribed before you wrote the letter as Rav Onan was, then subconsciously it may play in your mind in such a way that you'll write the letter in such a way that the person who bribed you may get an additional advantage in the case. And in this case, it worked. And that's the reason why Elio Anovi refused to come, come refused to teach him. And when he was forced, refused to teach him like before. To this day, Elio Rabbin Elio Zutta, one before the bribe and one after the bribe. To teach us that the bribery affects us in ways that we may not be, we, we may not even be conscious of. It certainly happened to Ravonon. What about the person who attempted to bribe Rav Onan? What about the, the, the one who gave the bribe? Did he necessarily consciously know what he was doing? The commentaries don't, at least I didn't see. Yes or no. But even if he didn't consciously know what he was doing, subconsciously he knew what he was doing. You see, my friends, our subconscious is very smart, <laughs> very sophisticated. He knew that if he had an in with one rabbi, he knew that if he had an in with one rabbi, it may help him to get an in with another rabbi. And the troubling part of the story, the Gomorrah says, 
is that it worked. This then becomes the deeper meaning of the words of the Pasuk. Don't take a bribe. Don't take a bribe and judge the case. Don't take a bribe even if you're not going to judge the case. Don't take something which was initially given, which, which was initially attempted to be given to you as a bribe, even if in the end it isn't a bribe and it's being given to you by a person who says, I want to give you Bikurim. I would add, right? I would add, don't, the Torah is telling us, don't take a bribe when a person flatters you. He basically, basically flattered Ravonan. He says, giving a gift to you is like giving Bikurim to Hashem. Who doesn't want to take that? Because of this, the Gemara says a person has to be so careful when it comes to not allowing themselves to be to be to be impressed upon, to be to be guided, to be to be forced, to be to be influenced, one way or the other. All right. Okay. This is the story. This is the story of the Talmud. Now let's ask an obvious question. So does that mean that this individual in this particular story got an incorrect ruling? The Gemara says it's forbidden to take shaykhan, it's forbidden to take a bribe, even to give the right ruling. Is the Gemara trying to say over here that the right ruling was given, but still he was guilty of bribing? The Gemara is saying over here the wrong ruling was given? How does this work? What actually happens if a judge is bribed? Well, if, if we know about it, then obviously the ruling is invalid. But what if we don't know about it? Or how are we ever supposed to know? Well, the, the answer is we don't know, right? We do our best. We hope and we pray that we, when we, we stand in front of judges and we stand in front of a, a Besdin, we hope and pray that, that the Besdin is impartial and, and will give us a ruling that, that is the will of Hashem. The Talmud says here that a judge, an ideal judge, should be as wealthy as a king, meaning he should not need anybody's money, independently wealthy. So that he's, he's not impressed upon one way or the other. But still, even if he doesn't need the money, a judge is still human. Right? Look, look what, how the Gemara is saying judges can be so easily influenced with flattery. We, we, we flatter people sometimes. Even we ourselves are not fully conscious of the fact that we're flattering them because we want something from them. Flattery will get you everywhere, right? Some of us have learned the hard way in life. When, when people compliment us, our, our, <laughs> our backs go up, right? <laughs> Where, where's the knife? Where, where's it, when's it coming? We know we're in trouble. Don't flatter me. Don't compliment me. You're making me nervous.
And how can a judge be so perfect? I mean, if Rav Onan couldn't do it, then, then, then how can a judge nowadays do it? Is the Torah trying to tell us that if one litigant compliments a judge while nobody's looking, that the judgment is invalid? In other words, what I'm asking is, it seems to be an impossibly high bar for a judge. The Gemara itself says that, that, that cases seem to get misconstrued here by the greatest of rabbis with the most noble of intentions. Or I guess what I'm really asking is, isn't every human being biased to one degree or another? How can a human being be a judge? How can any human being ever judge any other human being? Obviously, the answer is that we believe Hashem runs the world. We believe that when two people stand in front of a Bezdin and the Bezdin issues a ruling, that that ruling is the will of Hashem. If everybody's done their due diligence, if everybody's done their best, if the litigants have done their best to go in front of a reputable Bezdin and the Bezdin has done their best to, to, to give an honest, impartial ruling, that ruling is the will of Hashem. There's a very famous Ramban teaching of Nachmanides, which we've learned before. The Ramban says that, that, that if a Bezdin it's actually, a, it's actually a harrowing teaching. The Ramban says that if a Bezdin, back in the day when, when Bezdin, when Jewish court had the right to execute people, if a Bezdin puts somebody to death, God forbid, push him off a two-story building and drop a boulder on his heart, kill somebody. And after they kill the person, it turns out that they did so based on testimony of two of two witnesses who, who, who were liars. Bezdin somehow bought in, believed the testimony of two people who lied to them. And we know that they lied to them because two other witnesses come and say that the witnesses who gave the original testimony, they weren't there at the, in the place they were there, the time they claimed to be, it's called Adam Zoyman. It didn't happen. But it's too late. Bezdin already killed the person. Ramban says, Ramban writes, that the reason in that case why there's no consequence for those, for those witnesses is because Almighty God would never allow the best in the court, a just and, 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 a just and honest and, and legitimate court to execute somebody if he really was innocent. If this individual really was innocent and did not deserve capital punishment, Hashem would not have allowed the Bezdin to go through with it. The fact that the Bezdin did go through with it, although now it turns out that they seem to have done so based on the testimony of false witnesses. Hashem allowed it? It means this was the will of Hashem. It's a harrowing teaching because, because we don't know what the basis for that, for that would be. It, it seems like we've killed an innocent person. There's precedent for this in the Gemara. We find this in the Gemara also. Because we have to believe that Hashem runs the world. And when Hashem tells us, go to a Bezdin, the will of Almighty God will be manifest through this Bezdin. The Gemara says very famously, right? 
the rulings of Bezdin stand, sometimes even if Bezdin make a mistake, sometimes even if Bezdin intentionally uh, give an incorrect ruling. There's such a concept, with regard to the calendar. The ruling of Bezdin stands is the ruling of a court. So the litigants who stand in the presence of the Bezdin, they have to believe that whatever it is, the will of Hashem will be manifest here. Okay. But the Torah still warns the judges, don't take a bribe. Don't allow yourself to be biased. If any of you have ever had the opportunity of talking to somebody, an intelligent person, a very intelligent person, in a situation where the person is biased and you watch a clever person's thinking get twisted in the wrong direction, it's really something to behold. Clever people are not any more safe from ulterior motives than simple-minded people. And simple-minded people are, are not any more vulnerable than clever people. Once a person is biased, the entire titanic of their intellect will go in the direction that the bias, that the bias sends it. The Torah says you have to be aware of this. The Torah teaches this to all of us in every circumstance. It's not to teach the litigants, it's not to tell the litigants that they should question the ruling of the Besden. The litigants have to accept what the Besden tells them. They have to accept it as the will of Hashem. But it is to the judges. It is to the person administering this judgment. And I'll tell you why I think it's so important. We are all judges. Every one of us are put in position of judgment. The Baal Shem Tov said very famously that after 120, when an Ashama goes upstairs to, 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 to the ultimate judgment day, the Ashama is judged, the soul is judged by, by judging itself. How does it judge itself? The heavenly court asks it to pass judgment on someone else, or at least what it thinks is someone else. In the end, it ends up passing judgment on itself. We're all called upon to pass judgment, to be judges. To make, to make decisions in our relationships with people, to make decisions in circumstances that we face in life, to one degree or another, we're all dayonim. Our rabbis teach us, quote, any judge who judges the case and he does so with the greatest and highest level of truth, is partnering with God in the creation of the world. Very difficult to understand. Why? Two guys come, <laughs> they're arguing over a thousand bucks, right? Reuben and Shimon calling each other liars and thieves. And the judge is able to, to, to remove himself from any bias to the, to the best, to the, to the most that it's humanly possible. The case can be made that it isn't entirely humanly possible to remove yourself from any kind of bias, but the judge does his best. And he does so, the Gemara says, it's like partnering with Hashem in the creation of the world. Why? You see, as Jews, my friends, as Jews, Hashem has given us all an Hashemah, a soul. There's a little bit of godliness, of divinity inside every one of us. 
when it's manifest, when we can touch it, when we can connect with that little spark inside ourselves, which is divine, to the best of our ability, we can and do become channels for God's kindness and graciousness in this world. In the words of the Gemara, we become Hashem's partners in bringing godliness in the world. The Torah is challenging every one of us to go beyond our own limitations, to go beyond our own agendas and, bias, and biases and open ourselves up to just simply the will of Hashem. As Jews, we have that gift, we have that power, we can, we can give it to ourselves, we can give it to those around us, we can give it to our environment. It's possible. But it takes a tremendous amount of work. We have to be able to move our own ego, we have to be able to move our own agenda out of the way. And it is ultimately, in the end, it is the hallmark of a true leader. The, one, the single most important quality in order to be a dayan, a judge, the Torah also talks, the whole parsha really is in essence is about leadership, right? There's the mitzvahs about kings here. If you look in the Torah, these passages about leadership, in the end, it all boils down to the same thing. A judge, a leader, a person who is put in position of power in Klal Yisrael has got to be able to do this and they've got to be able to do it over and over and over again. And they've got to be able to do it and they've got to challenge themselves to do it on a higher and a higher level, which is open themselves to that which is truly beyond them and channel to the best of their ability Hashem's will. I've got to be able to ask myself, what does Hashem want from me here without any other, without any other agendas? Just, just the will of God. I heard a great Hasidic story. <laughs> I heard a great Hasidic story. There's many stories, you know, that sort of go along these lines, but, but here's one example. A man once came to a Rebbe, he said, Rebbe, I'm in desperate need of financial assistance. Desperate. My wife is ill. My children are ill. I'm, 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 I'm suffering terribly. I can't marry off my children. I, I, I owe people money. They're, they're, they're good. I'm in desperate need of financial assistance. How much do you need? A thousand rubles, two thousand rubles, whatever the case may be. The Rebbe says, okay, I'm going to do my best to help. And he goes around the city and he knocks on everybody's door and he, go, he starts collecting money. After an hour, he comes back to the guy and he looks him straight in the face and he says to him, you're lying to me. You made up the story. Never happened. 
your wife is not sick, Baruch Hashem. Your children are not ill, Baruch Hashem. No, you don't owe anybody money. You're, 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 just, uh, you're just being greedy. You lied to me. Tell me the truth, the Rebbe says. Tell me the truth. And the man broke down. He says, Rebbe, you're right. I, I lied to you. I got greedy. I, I, I heard you're a very kind person. I, I, I knew I could push your buttons if I sold you a sob story. I sold you a sob story. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He says, but the Rebbe, tell me, how did you know? How did you know? In the beginning, you believed me. You went around collecting money. After an hour, you came back. How did you know? He says, listen to this. His Rebbe says, I'll tell you how I know. He sa the Rebbe says, I go collecting money all the time. This is a very regular experience for me. I go around from house to house, from door to door. I ask people for help for all sorts of different projects. He says, I have a rough idea of how much people give. From experience, I've learned how much people contribute, how long it will take to get me to assert to collect a certain amount of money. And I have a sense of, of how much it takes on average. And it's usually, you know, plus minus. I have a good sense of, of, how, how, of how much money I'm going to raise. He says, you came to me like everybody else. You wanted help. I believed you like everybody else. But then he says, when I went around to collect the money, door to door, one, two, three, four, five people were exceeding my expectations. I expected them to give me 10 rubles. He gave me 20. I was expecting the second guy to give me 50. He gave me 100. The money was coming in. <laughs> The money was coming in too easily. The money was coming in too easily. I knew there was a problem. I thought, ah, maybe it was just the first couple of houses. Maybe these guys are having a good day. It says all nine out of 10. I went door to door, knocking, banging. Everybody's being more generous than I anticipated. It's happening too easily. He says, the minute I realized it was happening too easily, I knew it wasn't. I knew I wasn't involved in a mitzvah. Mitzvahs aren't that easy. Mitzvahs are supposed to have an element of pain and difficulty. <laughs> supposed to have pain and difficulty to them. As soon as I realized it was so smooth, I said, nah, this is not, we're not fulfilling the will of Hashem here. And I came back to you and I accused you of being a liar and you admitted it. That's the story. What does the story mean? What's the significance of it? To connect to Hashem, to channel, to be a shutaf, to be a partner with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we have to be able to go out beyond our own limitations. It isn't, that's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be challenging. If a case comes before a judge, the Gemara says, and he so obviously thinks he knows what the halacha is, and somebody wants to slip him a 50. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? You have to act here as an agent of Hashem. You have to be open, you have to be able to open yourself up here to Hashem's will. In order to do that, you have to be, you have to, you've got to go out of your own perceptive perception. You gotta, you gotta challenge yourself to be to be less biased, not more. You got to challenge yourself to see things that you haven't seen until now, not get locked into your own perspective. The more powerful a person is, the more powerful his or her word is, the more dangerous they are if they're, if they're not humble. 
Appoint judges everywhere. But to the judges, we turn to them and we say, challenge yourself every day not to be bribed, not to be cajoled, not to, not to be won over, you know, not to let people's charisma get to you, not to let people's threats get to you. I conclude with this. The Benish Chai gives a beautiful interpretation of the Pasuk. He says, the Pasuk says, you shall appoint judges in all the cities of Eretz Yisrael. That Hashem has given you to the Jewish people. He says, why is it relevant here that Hashem gave Eretz Yisrael to the Jewish people? Why is that relevant? He says, remember the first Rashi in all of Chumash, which we'll learn in a couple of weeks, right after Simchas Torah. Remember the first Rashi in all of Chumash? The Goyim come to the Jews and say, you stole Eretz Yisrael? You're thieves! And the Jewish people say, oh no, we're not thieves. Hashem gave us Eretz Yisrael. He says, in order for a Jew to stand up there and make the claim and say, Hashem gave me Eretz Yisrael, I'm not a thief. The Jew needs to make sure that he's not a thief in every, in every aspect of his life. He needs to constantly be re-examining himself and his own possession of his things and, 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 and his own claims. Appoint judges in every gate and then stand up and say, the land that Eretz Yisrael, give, the land of Eretz Yisrael that we inhabit, that we own, was given to us by Hashem. We're not thieves. The nations of the world say, you stole it from us. The Jewish people have got to be able to stand up there without agenda, without any bias and say, no, Hashem gave it to us. We're called upon to live lives as much as humanly possible that are true and authentically godly. It's a challenge at every step of the way. The Torah says, remember, you can be very wise. You can be very learned. You can be sitting and, you can be sitting and studying Torah at the feet of Elio Anavi. And on your level, you can be challenged with this. Every step of the way, a person's got to be able to say, okay, it's time for me to think not about myself, not about how this is going to be the best thing for me, but how Hashem has put me into this world to share, to be, a, to be an ambassador of godliness in the world around me. And in that sense, to become a partner with Hashem in the creation of the world. Wishing you all a wonderful Shabbos, a wonderful month of Elul, and may Hashem bless us all with a kasiva v'chasim ha-toiva, v'shan ha-toiva